welcome to the Independent News Hour. In the headlines today, President Biden announces the U.S. will end its longest war by September 11th. Protests over the police killing of Dante Wright reach New York City. And Mayor Bill de Blasio announces that more than 50,000 students will return to class later this month. Good evening in New York. I'm John Tarleton, editor-in-chief of The Independent, New York City's progressive newspaper and website. America's longest war will be over by September 11th. That's according to President Joe Biden, who announced this afternoon that the U.S. would withdraw its 2,500 military troops from Afghanistan by the 20th anniversary of the 9-11 terrorist attacks that set the war in motion. The answer is that it's going to be hard to meet the May 1 deadline. Just in terms of tactical reasons, it's hard to get those troops out. So what we've been doing, what I've been doing, and what Secretary Blinken has been doing has been we've been meeting with our allies, those other nations that have NATO allies who have troops in Afghanistan as well. Biden's withdrawal plan does not cover CIA forces currently based in Afghanistan. Conservative critics of Biden's move warn that the U.S.-backed government in Kabul will collapse if U.S. and NATO ground forces exit the country. The U.S. has spent hundreds of billions of dollars and lost more than 2,000 troops while failing to defeat the Taliban, the Islamic fundamentalist group that ruled Afghanistan before the U.S. drove it from power in 2001 at the onset of the war. In Minnesota, the police chief of Brooklyn Center, Minnesota, has resigned following a second night of protests over the police killing of Dante Wright, a 20-year-old black man who was pulled over by police for allegedly having an air freshener obscuring his rearview mirror. Here in New York, Black Lives Matter protesters took over the George Washington Bridge yesterday to protest Wright's killing. Wright was wanted on a warrant for a pair of misdemeanor offenses, including marijuana possession. On CNN last night, his aunt, Naisha Wright, asked how the police officer who shot her nephew could confuse a taser for a gun and then open fire. An accident? No, come on now. Everybody in this world saw that gun. You mean to tell me you thought it was a taser? I've owned over a 20,000 volt taser. They don't feel nothing like a gun. They took my man's life from him. My great nephew has to now grow up not even knowing, not even being able to touch his father. You tell me, is it all right to take somebody's life over a a misdemeanor warrant just for some weed? You got these politicians out here smoking weed. They ain't dead. Meanwhile, New Mexico became the latest state to legalize marijuana on Monday following close on the heels of New York, which legalized cannabis at the end of March. Under the legislation, all New Mexicans with criminal records for cannabis possession will have those records expunged. And finally, here in New York City, Mayor Bill de Blasio announced Monday that more than 50,000 middle school and high school students will return to their classrooms later this month. Uh, We know, we know from experience how safe our schools are. We set a gold standard of health and safety measures that would work, and they have. Safest place to be in New York City is our schools. Friday was the last day for opt-in. The final numbers are now in. We have just over 50,000 students who have opted in for in-person learning again uh, across all grade levels. And we're going to make sure we can accommodate We know we can. We'll accommodate all those kids 
So I want to emphasize that the plan is that 50,000 plus kids have opted in. They are all welcome back. And they will be welcome back. Our kids who have opted in will be welcome back to school on Monday, April 26th. Later in the show, we'll hear from a member of the Movement of Rank-and-File Educators who says the city should keep public schools closed until September when the new school year begins. We'll be back after this short break. Black Rage by Lauren Hill, inspired by the events in Ferguson following the shooting of Michael Brown in 2014. Lauren Hill shared this previously unreleased song on Twitter in 2014. And you're listening to the the Independence News Hour on WBAI Radio in New York. I'm John Tarleton, the Indies Editor-in-Chief. I'm joined today by my Indie colleague, Julia Thomas. Julia, it's great to have you joining us as a co-host. Yeah, thanks so much, John. It's great to be with you and all our listeners on 99.5 FM and streaming on WBAI.org. Right. And last week, New York State adopted a historic budget that raises taxes on the rich and provides assistance to millions of New Yorkers struggling to get through the pandemic. It also provides more state aid for public schools and uh, many other good things. Such a budget would have been unthinkable a few years ago, but voters have sent a wave of bold young progressives and, and socialists to Albany since 2018, and they've made their impact felt. One of those bold young progressives is State Senator Jessica Ramos of Queens. She's going to join us today to talk about the $212 billion budget deal that was won and also what remains to be done and how it all went down. Uh, and we're going to be joined, we expect to be joined short, shortly by uh, Senator Ramos. Uh, we understand she's uh, in a, in a hearing and we'll be, we expect her to join us shortly um and uh but julia this was a really a, a historic agreement and and one of the things that was really exciting uh, to see last week of course was the approval of a, a first ever 
excluded workers fund, uh, $2.1 billion uh, dedicated to this uh, excluded workers fund. Uh, one uh, one uh, policy institute estimates that it will assist 290,000 workers uh, here in, in New York State, and over 200,000 of those live in uh, the five boroughs here in, in New York City. And, uh, and there was a, a celebration at Washington Square Park on, on Wednesday afternoon. It was a, a beautiful uh, afternoon. Um, I know you witnessed, witnessed that, too, and that was a story you were following closely at um, you know, it was a really exciting time to see this kind of breakthrough happen. Yeah, absolutely, John. It's been really incredible to to see that after the months of activism and mobilizing, and especially after the recent hunger strike of um, of lawmakers, but particularly of um, of organizers themselves, um, many of whom are undocumented, pushing for this fund and for. Um, to ensure that there's federal aid for um, people that have been excluded um, during the pandemic. I mean, it's huge. This is the largest fund uh, for undocumented people um, in history from the federal government. And uh, it's it's definitely something to celebrate. And I'm looking forward to hearing um, Senator Ramos's uh, thoughts yeah, on this. We, um, I, we, we uh, believe we have her with us. It's actually, it's not going to be federal funds. It's going to be state funds to make up for federal funds that were denied. But the money's all going the same place, and that's great. Uh, Senator Ramos, are you are, are you with us? I'm here. I'm here, and and thank you for making that point, John. That's actually really critical to understanding the fund for excluded workers. Is that there is no federal funds being used here? I mean, we actually had some House GOP. Uh, uh, Congress members raised some flags that federal funding was being used to feed people who don't have documents, heaven forbid. And um, alas, they're wrong. We're not. Um, And so that is not a concern. That's exactly why it was so critical that we fought and won uh, the ability to raise taxes on our richest New Yorkers um, so that we can fund programs like these that are excluded from the federal from federal funding, right? And and can you uh, uh, just to backtrack a little bit here, uh, give us a sense of the full scope of uh, what you all achieved last week uh, with with the budget deal, but not only the ex- excluded workers fund, but uh, uh, other things that uh, were approved that uh, you know might not have been possible a few years ago before people like yourself showed up on the scene. Yeah, no, the budget was dramatically different this year, um, and it's it's hard to pinpoint exactly what made the difference because the climate was just so different. We have many more progressive elected officials in both the state Senate and the Assembly than ever before, but also the governor is drowning in all sorts of scandals, and I think, you know, was often distracted, and that gave us the ability uh, to really make our case and he acquiesced on many fronts, including on raising taxes on some of the, uh, you know, richest among us, the, the um, income tax brackets uh, for those making over a million dollars changed. Um, and um, I'm sorry, I don't remember off of the top of my head, uh, all of the different ways that we that we're raising revenue now, but 
Um, you know, there were other critical changes that were made that raise a little revenue, like legalizing marijuana, like online sports betting. That's finally also happening. Uh, but in the end, um, you know, the thing the, the thing that I was the most focused on was my excluded workers bill. We were able to secure two point one billion dollars. We created two tiers, tier one and tier two, depending on your ability to uh, provide documentation uh, to prove loss of income. That'll determine what category you fall into. But people should be should start getting their paperwork together. We expect implementation over the next few months. And this is a huge economic stimulus for communities of color across the state, not even just New York City. Almost a quarter of the money is going to Long Island and a bunch of places upstate where there's a lot of brown people, they'll be getting a lot of they'll be getting a lot of money over there too. So this is money well spent and I'm very thankful uh, to everyone who was involved in this fight. Yes, yes, absolutely. Congratulations on that, you know, historic, uh, the win with this excluded workers bill, um, Senator Ramos. And I wanted to ask about sort of um, the this tiered system. And um, I mean, there's also, you know, perhaps some challenges surrounding, um, you know, ensuring that um, the this relief gets to all the folks that need it. Um, can you talk about if you anticipate any challenges around um just, uh, you know, any barriers around people providing documents. Um, and there is a big difference in terms of the amount of relief that people in that first tier can receive, which is $15,600, um, versus those in tier two who cannot provide proof of employment prior to the pandemic um, uh, for $3,200. Can you talk about any barriers that you anticipate there? Yeah, so the so the biggest barrier right now is in implementation, right? We're still a few months away from actually implementing this program, and I'm actually starting to hear that there's some scammers out there trying to pull a fast one on our undocumented population, and I want to caution everybody against that. Um, but um, so excluded the excluded workers fund is is for people who can do three things one is they can prove their identity with their passport with a state id with an idnyc um they need to be able to prove residency they have to have been living in new york state prior to march 27th 2020 and they need to be able to provide proof of loss of income. So for those who have tax ID numbers or a social security number and, and file taxes, that's easy. And the, the, the years 2018, 2019, and 2020 are critical. But uh, for others, we're actually waiting for the Department of Labor Commissioner uh, Reardon to promulgate a point system of documentation to allow for workers to to prove eligibility for this fund. So this will include hopefully things like punch cards and pay stubs and receipts from check cashing places, um, emails and text messages between employers and uh, and, 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 and the worker. Um, what we're asking the commissioner to do is to put together a system that is comparable to the burden of proof that is required in court for wage and hour violations. Um, so, so that's that's where we are with that. Um, the, so, and I want to be very clear: there is a lot of misinformation about this. 
it's not that I've heard uh, I've read reports about uh, saying that people workers will be able to get up to fifteen thousand six hundred dollars. No, there are two categories with two very flat uh, amounts of money in the first category is for fifteen thousand six hundred dollars. Indeed, it that means that it's less than a third of the maximum allowable award through unemployment insurance, just to give people an idea. And then there's the $3,200, which is comparable to the stimulus check that everybody received. Um, and, and like I said, we're going to uh, be able to uh, decide how much, uh, you know, and, and, and how it is that people can, uh, can qualify for one or the other over the next few months. Um, but I, I'm really happy this is happening right now. It's about uh, making sure that the Department of Labor is doing their job. And I'm going to I'm going to keep on. So I'm going to stay on them like a hawk and make sure that uh, and make sure that they're doing the right thing and that they're doing it as, as fast as possible. I do want to shout out the state controller and our attorney general who have been key partners here. They're going to be providing oversight of the program and making sure there isn't any fraud in any which way, uh, which is really important. So it really, it really is a coming together uh, of, of, you know, state power to put together this program. And remember, it's only a one-time program, right? Um, this is important because this means that we'll have $2 billion in the budget next year to do something else um, and, and and hopefully help more more working class people. Right. And and one other aspect of the Excluded Workers Fund I wanted to ask about was a, a group of people, I believe, that was left out of the fund, which was uh, uh, formerly incarcerated people. I believe there, there was an effort in the campaign to get them included. Um, can, can you talk about that a little bit and, and, yeah, and where, sure. where things stand for those individuals? You know, we, we were hoping to explicitly include incarcerated people or formerly incarcerated people, I should say, in the bill, but they're not excluded. So the bill, even though it's largely being framed as help for undocumented workers, and it is for many, really isn't explicitly for un undocumented workers. The fund is for any worker in New York State that was excluded from any federal wage replacement program like unemployment insurance or PUA or, uh, you know, or didn't get a stimulus check. All of those folks, including formerly uh, uh, incarcerated people who didn't have employment history to qualify, as long as you have proof of loss of income, you too can apply for this fund. This fund is for anyone who was left out. And so they're not explicitly included, but they weren't carved out either. That's great. Right. Yeah, and uh, and and Senator Ramos uh, pivoting to um, kind of kind of the the issue of impeachment, um, you know, of, of government Cuomo. That's do you, a big pivot, girl. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> do you still think that Governor Cuomo should be impe impeached over the nursing home and sexual harassment scandals he's embroiled in? And if so, how do you have a sense of how that that looks at this time? Julia, his sins are still there. I mean, they haven't gone away. He still is being accused of sexually harassing women. In fact, more situations have come to light since we've passed the budget. Um, unfortunately, thousands of New Yorkers still have lost their loved ones in those nursing homes 
because of the decisions this governor made. So yes, I strongly believe the man uh, does not belong in office. Um, I also recognize that he will stubbornly stay there. Um, but we have to continue being strong and, 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 and loud and, and, you know, asking for justice for these families, for these women. Um, we need these investigations to be taken seriously. Um, so I, you know, I think we're going to see some renewed calls for movement and for action on that front, um, because justice has to be served, right? We, we owe it to everyone here that we, that we get to the bottom of what happened in, all of these situations, and even in, in, in him trying to, you know, help his family skip the line on COVID tests and all of these things and, and, and getting a $4 million book deal. Um, you know, I just, where can I get one of those? I don't know. <laughs> um, but I mean, I've, I've read your writing. It's probably much more deserving. John. <laughs> Um, Thanks. And, I'll, I'll, I'll better you, go get an agent. And you would tell our working class stories, which is much more valuable. Uh, yes. Uh, and um, sort of, you know, on that note of sort of, uh, you know, thinking about other uh, New York politicians, I also wanted to ask about your reaction, um, Senator Ramos, to Andrew Yang tweeting over the weekend that more law enforcement should be directed at sidewalk vendors in order to bring more business to brick and mortar stores. Yeah, over my dead body. Um, I am not going to let anybody treat street vendors, uh, with anything less than the dignity that they deserve. We are talking about a group of entrepreneurs who are mostly women and mostly women of color. Many of them are undocumented. Many of them are the moms, the aunts, the grandmothers of many of the girls I grew up with, um, they are doing honest work. And it is not their fault that the city has never provided them with the infrastructure and the support that they need in order to do their jobs in the best way possible, but also hopefully aspire to an actual brick and mortar, right? Everybody's been so busy taking dark real estate money, catering to them and allowing these commercial rents to hike up you know, making it harder for them to make ends meet. It's it's really important to be informed on the issues when you run for office. And it's really important to understand how government works and how it doesn't work. You know, I and and, and I don't I, I would expect that Andrew Yang has the best intentions in you know in mind in his heart. Um but I I would suggest, you know, it's important to walk the streets, not only during the day, but also at night and talk to people who are trying to make a living and understand their hardships. Because if you're gonna be mayor, if you're gonna be actually an elected official in any capacity, you know, you need to be accurate and you need to be informed and you need to be respectful of the New York hustle. Right. And and, and speaking of uh, mayoral candidates, so we just have a, another minute or so here. Uh, but I w- wanted to ask you about Scott Stringer. He's the candidate uh, you've endorsed, and he's also uh, been endorsed by a number of other progressives, uh, Julia Salazar, uh, Jamal Bowman, uh, Alessandra Biagi. Um, he's currently uh, trailing in the polls placing in third or fourth place in most polls uh, behind Yang and uh, Eric Adams and, and Maya Wiley sometimes as well. Uh, your thoughts about uh, uh, Scott Stringer, you, you, one, you, you think he can still uh, uh, win this thing? And, and also, 
the 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 calculations you made in in terms of endorsing him. Obviously, there's a lot of people that uh, want to see a first woman mayor or male mayor for a little while. Can you kind of share what kind of informed your decision to uh, endorse uh, Scott Stringer? Yeah, I really appreciate this question because I'd like to see a woman mayor, too. I'd certainly like to see a woman mayor who, you know, is is hopefully Latina someday. Right. Someone I can identify with. But out of Could this that be you. Be? <laughs> Hold on. Let me answer the first. Few questions. <laughs> okay. So so I I very much, you know, believe that Scott Stringer is the most qualified person out of this cohort of candidates. Um, And that's largely given the moment that we're living in. Um, I think that largely with any job, there are two different learning curves, right? Like you, you either know the material and don't know the job very well, or you know the job very well and the learning curve is in the material. We really can't afford to have a mayor that has a lot of learning curves here. And the situation or the dynamic rather between Albany and New York City has always played a significant role in the economic stability of our city, right? New York City can't, can't, you know, pass any taxes on its own, really, aside from property, from property tax. This is why whoever thinks that Yang is going to give you a UBI, I got a few bridges to sell you because he's not going to be able to do that exactly. So we need someone who actually understands how Albany works and who can do a good job of advocating for us up in Albany, but also, you know, making sure that they're bringing back the right resources and, and, and doing the right things. Scott Stringer is uniquely positioned to do that. Um, I also really admire his work ethic and how he's been able to build a network of legislators around him. Let me tell you, the coincidence that of, of, of the progressive's who have endorsed Scott Stringer, it's not just that we all agree that Scott Stringer should be mayor. If you look at us closely, we're actually a network of legislators who work and have been able to pass several bills together that help working class people. Just today, I was rallying outside of the governor's office with We've Linda got about Rosenthal 30 more seconds. on the sweat bill. I'm sorry? We have about 30 more seconds. Oh, sorry. Okay, so yeah, I mean, just just earlier today, I was with Linda Rosenthal outside the governor's office, you know, fighting for for uh, you know the sweat bill to to help on wage theft, um, and and I think that that's again why Scott is good. Scott knows the ins and outs of this city. He sends his kids to public schools. He's lived here his entire life. Um, he's done the work, and I think you know over the next few weeks, you're going to see us pound the pavement as a team and really get out there. I mean, I've been a little busy on the budget, but I'm a little less distracted now. So game on, baby. All righty. State Senator Jessica Ramos, it's always a pleasure to have you join us on WBAI. Good to be on always. Good to All see right. you. Thank you. All right. Uh, we'll be back uh, after this short break, and we'll be talking with a teacher about school reopenings and uh, and what's going on with the Department of Education and uh, how that should all be handled uh, in the the remaining uh, months of the school year.
was La Jolula de Oro by Los, by Los Tigres del Norte. And I'm John Tarleton, uh, host of the uh, Independent News Hour here on WBAI, along with my co-host, uh, Julia Thomas. In our uh, second segment for this show, we're going to talk about public education, school reopenings, uh, and, uh, and uh, how uh, students, teachers, parents are all grappling with uh, with the pandemic. We're, we're a year into the pandemic, and it's it's been a uh, tremendous upheaval for the schools. It hasn't been easy for anyone. Uh, as we heard uh, earlier in, in the show in the headlines, uh, Mayor de Blasio is trumpeting that a, another 50,000-plus stu- uh, middle and high school students will be returning to their classrooms uh, later this month. Uh, joining us to talk about all this is uh, Jake Jacobs. He's a, a, a middle school art teacher in the Bronx. He's also a member of the uh, Movement of Rank-and-File Educators. It's the Social Justice Caucus of the United Federation of Teachers, the massive uh, union local here in in New York that represents uh, uh, more than 70,000 active uh, school teachers across the city. And uh, Jake, uh, thank you for joining us today. Happy to be here. Thanks, John. You bet. Uh, So so the mayor is uh, eager to get more students back in the classrooms. Uh, including uh, older students, uh, middle and high school students. And uh, can you share your thoughts on that and, and why you and other members of MORE are, are concerned about the approach the mayor is taking and why this is hasty and, and maybe uh, not well-conceived? Sure. Um, you know, right from the beginning of the school year, um, you know, teachers have been um, anxious and uh we felt like, um, you know, looking at the same science and the same articles and the same Dr. Fauci appearances as everybody else, um, you know, that we should err on the side of um, caution, um, you know, um, and and not just, you know, for our own well-being. It's also the students who go home to their families every day. Um, you know, in the Bronx, we have a lot of intergenerational families, um, you know, maybe not so many down in Manhattan, but, um, you know, the, the you know, it, it's also a matter of, you know, when are we going to get rid of the virus? Um, you know, the, the things that we've been advocating for are, you know, trying to get us to a place where we can, you know, get back to normal with open schools and, you know, and get this behind us. But, you know, not just in New York, but nationally, we've been seeing this hodgepodge of policies where, you know, people are fighting, you know, to open as as fast as possible, even though it means you're going to be prolonging the spread of the virus. So, um, you know, day by day, we see, you know, articles come out saying this and that, and it's been such a ping pong battle. Everybody's an armchair epidemiologist. 
And, um, you know, what, what Moore has been doing is, uh, you know, trying to, you know, hold the uh, Department of Education, you know, and hold our own union, um, you know, to the, to the, to their word, you know, first it was the, uh, the 3% policy, and then it was the two case rule. And, you know, you seeing that, you know, things keep changing and the goalposts keep moving. Um, you know, we want to get back to person, you know, in-person um, learning as much as anybody. But, um, you know, we're, we're the ones that seeing firsthand what's going on in schools. And, um, you know, in, in, I could, you know, I can tell you about in my school, um, we have very few kids in person, you know, maybe, maybe it's gone up from about 25% uh, to maybe about, you know, 30% we're going to see in the next week or two. Um, but the parents are very hesitant. And then when it comes to distancing, the distancing is not very strict. I hate to tell you, but if you go to the Bronx, you know, you're walking up to school in the morning and you're seeing, you know, kids eating two sides of the same sandwich in front of the bodega before you even get into the building. So, you know, it's, you know, when you get into school, we're trying to enforce distancing and be safe and everything. But, you know, kids are kids and, uh, you know, especially elementary kids. I mean, you know, the second you turn your back, they're, you know, telling secrets in each other's ears and, you know, <laughs> Yeah, really? right. Yeah, kids. I mean, you know, kids are kids. So, right. And can you talk a little bit more about just the fact that because you you have a lot of students that are are still learning remotely, that even the the kids who go to the classrooms are essentially still getting a, a Zoom based education because the teacher has to teach also to the majority of the students who are not who are not even in the classrooms. Yeah, I mean, that was a decision that was made by administration and every school's handling this differently. But um, my school decided, I think correctly, um, that we have to keep the programming the same. That means, you know, you have your schedule, you have your classes, you have your teachers. And if we would have uh, changed the schedule every time we changing, uh, you know, setting or format, we would have been topsy-turvy, you know, from day one. This way, we've had the same classes, the same kids, the same teachers, and we've been able to do that. And, you know, it's because the the few kids that we do have in person are working on laptops. And I know it, I know it's not great. I, you know, you know, I'm an art teacher, (laughs) you know, I, I would, I would like to be painting and drawing and doing stuff with our hands. We're not even supposed to, you know, pass papers around, you know, or, or, or share pencils or anything. So, um, you know, it was a practical decision that was made to try to, you know, keep stability in the programming of, uh, of classes and, and uh, you know, the schedules of teachers, because, you know, our school has not changed since the beginning this year. Right. And, and Jake, when it comes to, you know, this push to have kids back in classrooms, what what are you, what's your view on sort of you know who are the parents that are driving this who are the people that are really pushing for this to happen you know there's been some talk about the fact that it's really more so upper and middle class parents um who are kind of behind this um this push for the school reopenings but but your take on that yeah um you know uh if you're out on twitter it's uh it's the wild west you know and um 
you know, everybody is complaining that they're not getting what they want. Um, I don't think anybody's happy. Um, you know, I think that parents and teachers are natural allies that should be sticking together and fighting for, um, you know, ventilation in, in the buildings that don't have them. Um, you know, that's not just a coronavirus issue. That's a long-term issue where we have kids, you know, that have terrible asthma and that's directly attributable to the buildings that they spend, you know, six to 10 hours a day in, you know, for, for their entire childhood. Um, you know, and you could, we could also talk about lead in the water and all this other stuff. So, um, you know, we're, we're hoping that, um, the, uh, you know, the, the parents who, who, you know, don't want to see their kid, uh, fall behind in the, you know, the, the race to, you know, great colleges, um, understand that, um, you know, not all schools are equal, not all buildings are, you know, uh, ventilated, um, and, uh, you know, and, and, and the truth is not all parents are seeing this the same way. You know, w the vast majority of parents in the Bronx are still not ready to come in yet. And, you know, these, uh, these vocal parents, um, you know, who want five days full time in person, like, you know, how are we supposed to manage that? How are we supposed to fit them all in? You know, we're supposed to be distance and, um, you know, it's just, it's it's just inconceivable. Like just this little bump that we're getting in my school means that we're going to be um, exceeding the capacity that's posted on the doors. You know, we're going to have to go from about 10 in a room uh, to about 14 in a room now. Um, and, uh, you know, you want to keep, um, you know, six foot distancing, um, you know, for the from the adults to the students. And then they're telling us that the students can go down to three foot but that's only when they're in classrooms, you know, that's not in the halls and the stairs and, you know, and in the yard and everywhere else. And, um, you know, the other thing is we have five day kids. Now we have kids that attend five days a week and those kids are in the same rooms as the cohorted kids. And so basically that means your cohorts aren't really pure at that point. And so we're not really cohorted. We're not really supposed to go down from six feet to three feet. And at least that's what's in the, the CDC guidelines, although that hasn't filtered down to New York City DOE guidelines yet. So there's all these little, you know, regulations and everything. And the reality on the ground is that, you know, kid, young kids, you know, they want to run around like crazy. I mean, you know, they, you know, their masks are, are sagging and loose and they don't care. And, you know, I mean, we teachers, you know, we have to be the bad guys and the enforcers, you know, we have to have like tape measures it out and we have to keep reminding them over and over. But as soon as they get out of school, they're rolling around in the grass, you know, in the park. And, you know, it's like, you know, if, if somebody gets infected with a case, it's very likely to, you know, to, to go to others. And so, you know, you're just hoping that kids don't get it as badly. Right. And sort of on this note also of what, you know, the precarious conditions and sort of what that will mean for standardized testing this spring, uh, you know, despite state officials in New York requesting that, you know, requesting a waiver for from the federal government to cancel the exams that were set to take place for third through eighth graders here, the Biden administration is require, requiring them. Um, and so your take on sort of you know, 
you know, on these tests, do you think that they, you know, should be happening as well as what, what will the testing process look like in the midst of the pandemic? Yeah, that's another mess. Um, you know, I could remind you guys, um, you know, when he was a candidate of uh, Joe Biden promised that he was going to end standardized testing. And he said it plain and clearly, you know, to a, a giant auditorium of teachers. And then, uh, you know, fast forward, we have this pandemic and then, you know, he's inaugurated and everything. And, you know, one of his first decisions was, uh, you know, to go back on that pledge. So um, I think it's awful. Um, the, the, you know, the, the education leaders in New York state um, have requested waivers and with good reason, you know, during a pandemic, you're not going to be able to test anybody that's remote which is the majority of kids, right? If you're testing uh, on a computer, you can have a device off on the side. You could have somebody talking to you off on the side. You you know, like um, the places that are doing remote testing, like there's some places in Connecticut that are doing this. Uh, the teacher has to ha monitor like all the kids online, like a security guard, you know? And I'm like, you know, you can't see their hands. You can't, you know, I mean, it's, it's ridiculous. So, um, you know, I don't know about that. And um, you ha so you have to come in person and, um, you know, and, and parents aren't into it. So um, thankfully, um, outgoing Richard, uh, outgoing um, Chancellor Richard Carranza promised parents that um, they're going to be notified of their rights to opt out this year. And sure enough, New York City uh, made the really big move the first time in history where they made the test opt in instead of opt out. So right now, there's no kid that's taken the test unless their parent proactively requests it. And that might be sending a letter or some schools might have an electronic form or an email uh, process. But um, that is going to reduce the number of New York kids taking the test. That's um, it. Yeah, that's a tremendous breakthrough. That's something that uh, act education activists have been fighting for for uh, at least a decade, if not longer. And uh, we're going to have to go here in a minute. And, and just the last thing I wanted to uh, ask you to talk about in the last 30 or 40 seconds is uh, if you could say just a little bit about more and, and how people can learn more about more and not only teachers who might be listening, but also parents who want to ally with a, an activist teacher formation like more. Yeah, um, um, Moore is the Social Justice Caucus of the UFT. Um, there's uh, about 750 paid members. And then uh, on our uh, social media platforms, there's nine, ten thousand, 10,000, um, you know, mostly teachers, uh, but also, uh, you know, paras and secretaries and school staff, all kinds of school staff. Um, we are, you know, the opposition caucus, I guess you would say, to the unity caucus, which is the, uh, you know, the caucus that's been in power for decades and decades. Um, and, um, you know, we are kind of, uh, you know, I would say, you know, maybe more uh, progressive or, um, you know, more, um, I guess, in tune with the rank and file. Um, you know, we believe more in democratic processes. Right. Oh, we, we just have uh, about 10 seconds here. Where could people find out something online, uh, URL or Twitter feed or something? Yeah, um, the twi uh, so it's More Caucus NYC, and uh, you could also see the webpage at morecaucusnyc.org, um, or just Google it, um, More UFT. Um, you know, we welcome uh, all teachers, and, um, you know, we have a chapter leader 
uh, elections coming up so that if anybody wants uh, help or guidance in, you know, getting more active in your school, um, more is the place to go. Alrighty. Jake Jacobs, uh, middle school art teacher from the Bronx and member of Movement of Rank and File Educators. Thank you so much for joining us on WBAI Radio today. Thanks for having me. Thanks you for bet. And uh, we, we'll be back after a short break, and we're going to be uh, talking about a beloved park on the Lower East Side that is at great risk of being demolished by uh, Mayor de Blasio and his administration. And there's a tremendous community fight back that's been going on there for the last uh, couple of years. It's a, a struggle the Independent has covered extensively. And uh, we're going to hear about some of the latest developments of, of from the East River Park and all the activism happening there. And uh, after this short break. The message by Grandmaster Flash and the Furious Five. You're listening to WBAI, and this is the Independent News Hour. With I'm your host John Tarleton. I'm here with uh, co-host Julia Thomas. In our third and final segment uh, today, uh, we're going to talk about the situation on the Lower East Side with the East River Park. It's a park that's been there for almost 80 years. It's one of the largest parks in uh, Manhattan. Not everybody knows about it, but it serves a, a large community. And uh, going back to Hurricane Sandy, that part of the city was inundated in, in, in uh, ocean water, and uh, the uh, city government has been uh, struggling to figure out how to protect the Lower East Side from future storms. And uh, the community there uh, came up with a plan that would have protected the majority of the park and, and uh, still had the flood control they needed. And instead, in 2018, uh, the de Blasio administration out of nowhere announced that they were going to demolish the entire park and, and, and spend years putting uh, eight feet of dirt, uh, uh, eight foot dirt wall there instead, and then build a new park on top of it. And in the process, they would cut down almost a thousand uh, trees that were nearly a century old, eliminating the shade the park provides, all the sports fields and Everything else that goes on over there, the barbecue pits, and uh, serves a large community in the Lower East Side, including tens of thousands of residents of uh, uh, NYCHA houses along the East River. And uh, there's been a tremendous uh, community uh, fight back against this. And we're joined this evening by uh, Eileen Miles, uh, a member of uh, East River Park Action. Eileen, thanks for coming on WBAI. Yeah, it's great to be here. Thank you for having me. Sure. And... and, um, so, so first of all, uh, uh, 
can you tell us, just give us a short uh, update on some of the latest developments in this story? The de Blasio administration really shoved through this this sort of plan of theirs o- over a lot of community opposition. And now documents are coming out uh, with some rather uh, astonishing revelations. Can you share a little bit about that? Sure. I mean, I think in 2018, like you said, when this when the city out of the blue said, no, we've got a better idea and it's faster and it's it's quicker and it's twice as expensive, which is to destroy the park to protect the neighborhood and the park. And the park was never actually in danger. The park was flooded during Sandy, but the water went back to the river. And it's one of the things that we don't hear often enough is that other parts of the coastline, like Battery Park, were were flooded, they got 12 feet of water. The East Village got three feet. And yet we're being treated like a disaster zone. And they're, at this point in time, getting glass gates and wetlands for a solution. And for us, our solution is to totally destroy the park. And this park, normally 100,000 people a year come to the park. And we think during the pandemic, it's probably double because people from all over the city are using the park because gyms were closed, but also people who people who are stuck in their apartments, kids, families, people who have no access to the outside except this park have been using it abundantly. So it's a bigger crisis than ever before. Um, and so what's what's happened um, is that when the city made this call, which was completely puzzling and, you know, activists and people involved at the time pushed back and pushed back. The city said, we have a reason for why we did this. And it's something called the value engineering report. Um, and basically it's, it's kind of, I think what that means is it's a report that, that it's kind of an engineering report that basically explains how much bang you're getting for your buck, for your money, what kind of coverage you're getting, why are we doing this? And when the, when the, um, activists and when the people in the community said, give us this report, the city said, no, it's a private report. We can't share this report with you. A little bit later, they said that they couldn't find the report. Then they said there was no report. And finally, when East River um, Park Action did a foil, we got a copy of the report, but it was completely redacted. Like there was barely a word. It was covered in black marks. So then we began a lawsuit and we got a version of a report that's somewhat unredacted and still most of the players, most of the names, most of the, the weighing of this plan versus that plan is gone. And so the city is clearly hiding something. And I think because I think their rationale, well, it's very hard to say, but it, it seems like with the pattern of the de Blasio administration, it looks like development is always what's behind things. And I think we're talking about beautiful riverfront property. I mean, you look at Hudson Yards, you look at what's happened on the west side, and we're talking about a beautiful, multi-class, um, very low income, though, um, multi-race, but mostly people of color, a park that is just such a gem and such a unique part of New York life. People are fishing there. Like you said, people are barbecuing. Kids play Little League. I've been running there since the 70s. I'm just, before I ever could afford a gym, I was down there. It saved my life, you know? And so it's just, I mean, it's it's insane. And I think it's just a land grab. It's an, an ancient trick in New York City. We take the land away from the poor people and we give it to the rich because this is an opportunity for politicians. Right. I, I recall when I covered this story a couple of years ago, uh, a resident from the Brook houses saying, this, this is my Hamptons. This is where I go in the summer. And just for our listeners, this park extends uh, from just south of uh, uh, 
East 14th Street, all the way down below the, the, the Williamsburg Bridge. So it's a, it's a long stretch of land along the, along the river. It's uh, that, 60, 60 acres, and there's a big amphitheater there that was the beginning of Shakespeare in the Park. It's such a part of New York history. Absolutely. And, um, uh, and, and also something I've heard a lot in relation to this story is conjecture that part of the reason they switched plans was to not uh, have to do any uh, lane closures on the FDR, that they prioritized cars over the residents of the neighborhood. Yeah, and also there's something called alienation, which is that I think that um, when you take um, when you take land, public land away from the city, you've got to get the state to vet it, and the state then and then the process becomes very transparent. And also, you have to give the people of the community millions of dollars in mitigation so that they have options. Right. And the original plan they were going to do that, and and there was there were many ways that they were going to help people you know, have places for kids to play baseball. It was like, it wasn't a total loss. And so this is like, they're actively trying to avoid public responsibility. Right. Uh, Unfortunately, our time is running short here. Um, But last thing, our last 30 seconds or so, uh, I understand there's going to be a a rally and a march through the neighborhood to the park on on Sunday afternoon. Uh, Can you share a few details with that? And then unfortunately, we're going to have to sign off here. Great. No, this is really we um, Sunday afternoon at um, at noon at it's on at Tompkins Square Park. We meet there and 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 we're going to walk through the East Village, part packed past our um, I think our council person's office and do some chanting there. And we'll and we'll wind up at this amphitheater that I mentioned before. We have amazing speakers. We have a, a leader of the Delaware Nation, Daniel Strongwater Thomas, Alicia Boyd, activist. It'll be amazing. It'll be at about one thirty. Come to come to the amphitheater, but march with us for, at noon. Yeah, it's a lovely park. And any of our listeners that get a chance to visit for the first time this weekend, you'll have a great time there. Eileen Miles, a, a legendary poet and community activist on the Lurie side. Thank you so much for joining us on this evening on uh, the Independent News Hour. And uh, we're going to have to um, uh, wrap it up here today. I want to uh, thank everybody for listening. Uh, co- co-host Julia Thomas and also our producer Amba Gagarian helped a ton behind the scenes. And uh, we'll be back same time next week. Central District, raised in the South Teen. I'm a homegrown kid, yep, 206 living. Used to play flyers up when I lived up on Union. Pushed it out to Orcas, and eventually the Kenyans. Didn't have much, but thankful for all we was giving. It was all until we found.